0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Maxim Sanson to tell us all about his book titled Invisible Lines Boundaries and Belts That Define the World, just published in 2023. This is a really interesting book, I think technically is social geography, but really does so many other things here. Um, the book examines unseen boundaries physical boundaries uh, conceptual boundaries political boundaries all sorts of different kinds of boundaries that help us think about kind of the world we have the world we've made um maybe what the world will be um as you can probably tell i found this absolutely fascinating so maxim thank you so much for being on the podcast to tell us all about it
1: oh thanks and thanks so much for saying that and thanks for having me today um so um yeah, I can introduce myself uh, Yeah, briefly. that'd be great. Yeah. Would you mind yeah.
0: introducing yourself and also as well, kind of why you decided to write the book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Maxim Sampson, as you said, and geography has always been my passion. Uh, it's always been the subject I gravitated towards at school. Um, so I grew up and studied in the UK, and, but I've actually been teaching in the US for the past five and a half or so years um, as part of the geography and GIS department at DePaul University in Chicago. And in my academic research, uh, I've tended to address the nexus between geography, religion, and education, um, kind of ranging from things like faith schools, admissions practices in England, to educating for disaster response in Indonesia. So, quite a wide range, but all sort of um, with an emphasis on geography, religion, and education. Um, But as you mentioned, my book. it's kind of like a lo- a wider social geography i think it's a really good way of summarizing it although it does uh, as you mentioned cover quite a few other themes um so my book invisible lines um has a different focus from my usual academic research um as it explores the unseen boundaries that affect how we all engage with the planet um and you asked you know why did i decide to write it i wrote it for a few reasons You should know that I started it during COVID lockdown. So in the first instance, it really provided a form of escape. Um, Like many others, I was a bit bored and I really just wanted to put my mind to something a bit different from my usual work. Um, I also wanted to test out my creativity and writing in a less academic style from what I'm I'm used to offered a really good form of release for me. Now, um, the first chapters I wrote were actually kind of standalone essays discussing various types of boundaries that interested me Um, and looking back, the boundaries we all kind of encountered during the height of the pandemic, like travel restrictions, which was something that affected me really personally as a um, UK citizen living in the US and unable to sort of travel um, back to do things like renew my visa, um, provided quite a lot of inspiration But quite quickly, I realised that many of my essays had a common thread, um, that the boundaries they discussed were invisible. And it also occurred to me that maps, which I have for as long as I can remember, love to read for fun, um, display all sorts of lines that, again, can't actually be seen when we're on the ground, so to speak. Um so the equator would be an obvious example, but I also thought about examples I use in some of my university classes. So you know, I was teaching remotely at the time and researching and coming across things like redlining maps in the US context. Um I teach a course called Religious Geography, um, so really good in terms of my academic interests. And um, it occurred to me that something like the Bible Belt in the US um, is a region that Americans will often refer to, but no one really agrees where its boundaries actually are. Um, you know, where, where do you cross in and out of the Bible Belt? I find talking with students, they have kind of very different concepts of the Bible Belt, and some of them are from um, parts of the country which might be considered that, but they don't always agree. So these kinds of invisible lines about where do you enter the Bible, about where do you leave it? And I I just started to look for more examples of lines being drawn as a means of understanding or engaging with the planet um, and came across loads of really interesting examples worldwide. And it was only then really that I began to contemplate bringing my existing essays together with some new ideas to form a complete book with a common thesis. And Really guiding me from that point on was a desire to produce a book that I would want to read um if I were browsing in a bookstore. Um this became sort of central to my mission really. I just wanted to write the book that I would want to read if um you know I were looking for something new. So a book really that not only provokes a whole new way of thinking about the world, but that also provides little nuggets of information, interesting factoids in I hope quite readable, compact chapters throughout. Um, I actually sometimes think I could convert parts of invisible lines into a resource for quizzes or people who love trivia, that sort of thing. Um, I kind of really just envisaged someone who's generally curious about the world, about geography, history, science, whatever it may be. um, Reading a chapter or two on their commute, perhaps, and finding out something new. Um, Kind of wanting people to have that sort of aha moment when they read the book. You know, how did I not know that? I never thought about that. And maybe even better, what invisible lines do I encounter in my everyday life that I've never given much or any thought to before? So um, a long answer, but uh, in terms of, you know, why I decided to write it, you know, ultimately I wanted the book to be accessible to an interest, a more general audience than just academics and to get people thinking and, and talking about the planet in a whole new way.
0: Well, I think one of the ways that you succeed in doing that is because um it's In some ways, I can see kind of how it came from a series of essays, but you really have a clear structure through the book that helps create those new ways of thinking um, because you have it so nicely categorized, the different examples. And so a bunch of things that you may not think are related, oh, wait, actually, they can be put under this umbrella. Oh, that's an interesting way to group them. So can you please introduce us to the five key categories that you use in the book and explain kind of given how many different options there are whenever creating categories, how did you decide on these?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. And it took a lot of thought. And it was something that I I kind of worked on later once I had all of the chapters completed, um, tried to find the most, in my my opinion, at least kind of logical way of structuring it. Um, So I just have the list um, beside me just so I make sure I get the phrasing correct. Um, But as you mentioned, yeah, the book's, uh, got 30 case studies organized into five categories. That's kind of how uh, the structure works. So five categories, each containing six case study chapters. And um, kind of, as I mentioned, I wanted the chapters to be quite compact. Um, so the first, so you can kind of get quite a lot of information, I think quite quickly, um, even just within a single category. So the first category is titled how invisible lines help us understand planet earth. Um, and this focuses on six examples, uh, six chapters of people drawing or perceiving boundaries in an attempt to better understand the um, natural workings of our planet. So including with regard to things like ecology, meteorology and climate change. Um, And I'd say as a result, really, it's kind of the most science-oriented of the five categories about just really kind of getting to grips with the planet and how to invisible lines allow us to understand the planet better um and then this goes into the second category which is called how invisible lines help us exert our influence on the planet so in this case um in in this uh section the case studies um show how we as people not only try to understand but also shape our surroundings or the planet um more kind of as a whole now um this is separate, different from the third category, which I'll come on to in a second, because Uh, Although some of the examples in this one, category two, uh, have had some negative consequences. I do believe that all six were intended when they were drawn for quite benevolent reasons. So um, protecting people from threats like disease and air pollution uh, and just generally improving people's quality of life. So uh, how humans draw lines in order to shape the planet in some way, hoping to kind of make it more livable. Um, and then, so the third category is a bit different because um, this one's called, "So how invisible lines allow people to claim territory as their own. Um, here, we again have humans shaping, molding the planet in some way, but for more specifically territorial reasons. So to claim ownership or control over a specific portion of the planet. And um, I, I've intended uh, in this section really as true as actually of everywhere in the book, um, to be honest, uh, I intended to try and cover a variety of spatial scales. So um, one chapter looks at the Treaty of Tordesillas, which has really quite a global focus and has had uh, really international ramifications, whereas something like uh, the chapter on beer to will, or I have one on football in Buenos Aires in Argentina, these are much more localised. So this category is about claiming territory in different ways Not just about governments, but about how people try and seize or uh, ensure that the territory essentially belongs to them. Um, The fourth category is titled how invisible lines allow people to divide us from them. And in a sense, this one brings together aspects of all three of the previous categories um, because people try to understand the planet, shape it and claim ownership of it through distinguishing, as this section shows, between specific places and groups of people. Um, now, I'd say this is quite the, the I'd say this is the weightiest um, section. It looks at quite uh, serious Grave topics, things like sectarianism, systemic racism in urban planning. Um, but the section also raises some questions as to the reality of a lot of boundaries that are often taken for granted, uh, but which maybe need to be questioned more. So, something like uh, where do we draw the boundary between a- Europe and Asia, and does that actually even exist? Um, and then the final category, although I do also have a st- um I added quite late on, a standalone epilogue on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, So the final category of six chapters is called How Invisible Lines Allow Groups to Preserve Their Cultural Distinctiveness. So whereas the fourth category um, about dividing us from them focuses in in large part on prejudices and the dangers of dividing between people, Uh, this fifth category examines examples of groups um, seeking to maintain a sense of difference from a wider world that might otherwise really kind of swallow them up Um, and in that sense it provides a more uh, maybe sensitive view of separateness so the chapters in this category uh, largely centre on um, minority religious, ethnic, linguistic groups, uh, all these kinds of um, forms of identity that in in distinct ways um, can be threatened by assimilation. So um, to, in terms of how I decided on these, uh, in truth, it, it did take quite a lot of time uh, because various of the case studies actually speak about multiple issues and might have gone in different sections. Um, but I'm really pleased with the final result. Um, this was actually a suggestion of my editors uh, having these categories, and I'm really glad they did suggest that because I think it helps the book to flow more smoothly from start to finish. Um, but also in line with kind of what I'd originally thought about when I was writing this a reader might even just dip in and out of the book they might look at the contents page and think oh I want to read about this chapter maybe it's one that I know a bit about this subject already uh let's see what else I can find out so essentially um Part of what I wanted with this structure was if you want to read the book from start to finish in the order presented, uh, you absolutely can. And I, I hope the narrative is quite logical and fluent. But alternatively, you could actually choose to read certain chapters um, and you won't um, find it kind of hard to get to grips with the subject material if you do just choose to um to kind of dip in and out. It's a bit of a balancing act, but that was something that was quite uh, an intentional decision.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, having read the book myself. Now that we have an understanding of those categories, i um, I am going to, I guess, cherry pick some of the particular examples to ask you about. There's obviously 30 cases, as you said, so we cannot discuss all of them. Um, so do look at the table of contents. And if there's one that you're interested in that we've not talked about, then feel free to you know, get the book and dip into it. Um, but I've chosen a few that I think might illustrate some of these themes you've talked about in the categories. So moving roughly kind of through the categories in the order that they're in in the book, starting off at the beginning, can you tell us a bit about the example um, from Bali and Lombok in Indonesia? Why is there such a difference between the flora and the fauna of these two islands, despite the fact that they're really close together, they're separated by just 40 kilometers of water? What does this line and this difference between the two, you know, why is it there? And what does it tell us about other invisible boundaries that we use to understand sort of the natural elements of the planet?
1: Yeah, um, I'm so glad you asked. Um, I love the fact you picked this um, chapter first. Um, This is, in fact, the first example I use in the book. And I have to say, uh, this was perhaps my favourite one to research. I found this one so interesting. So um, the boundary you're referring to is uh, commonly known as the Wallace Line. Um, The Wallace Line is named after Alfred Russell Wallace, who um, at the same time as Charles Darwin was developing his theory of evolution through natural selection um, in the Galapagos Islands, um, Wallace was doing really the same uh, all the way in the Malay archipelago. So, as you say, what's now generally Indonesia, um, some of this region is, is kind of part of different countries, but on the whole, uh, he traveled very extensively around what we now call Indonesia. Um, And Wallace, while he was um, travelling, recording really copious, detailed and actually quite readable um, notes on the species he encountered, um, Wallace noticed that the species to the western side of the archipelago um, in uh, Borneo, for instance, are very different from those to the eastern side, like Sulawesi. In fact, you mentioned barley and Lombok. So barley to the west and Lombok to the east. They are very close together. And yet the species that he saw there were often completely different, especially with regard to fauna um with yeah, with regard to fauna. Um so if I give you some examples, um which weren't just what Wallace observed, but what we can see now, um, you will find what we might today consider to be Asian animals like tigers, um, woodpeckers. These are found on the western side of this invisible line, whereas what we might call Australian fauna, so something like a porcupine, um, or cockatoo, they're found on the eastern side. And, um, yeah, he, he really just found these clear cut differences between species, even across these really short stretches of sea. As you say, Bali and Lombok at, at points are only 40 kilometres apart, uh, which is, um, I think, about 25 miles. This is not a big difference. You know, this is not a big distance. rather, um, And yet, clearly, the animals on either side had evolved in very different ways. So Wallace argued that um, although we often think about um, things like major mountain ranges and deserts, really quite clear physical boundaries um, being very impactful in sort of precluding migration and species exchange. Actually, these boundaries can be much more subtle. Um, And so to answer your question of why there's such a major difference on either side of such a kind of modest uh, body of water, Wallace, again, quite remarkably, he knew that during past ice ages, many contemporary seas would have been locked up as ice, so the general sea level would have been much lower than it is today. And he also realised that water bodies like the Lombok Strait, between Bali and Lombok, um, water bodies like this are unusually deep. And so even though um, when the general world sea level would have been much lower, um, you know, other seas... Uh, would have been land bridges. So animal species could have easily migrated across what was then land but is now sea. Because things like the Lombok Strait, places like the Lombok Strait, are so deep, even then they would have been water bodies. And so any animal that couldn't swim or fly a long way would have just remained on the other side of the line and evolved separately um, from its counterparts on the other side. Um, And what's remarkable, in my opinion, about this is that Wallace came up with his his theory at a time when people just didn't know very much about glaciation, about plate tectonics. Um, These uh, ideas were developed, in in general, much later. So he was able to identify the existence of this deep water trench between Bali and Lombok and to pinpoint its impact on species evolution. And in short, this is why we have... um, kangaroos, koalas, wombats, um, platypuses, all on one side of the line. And we have squirrels and cats and, and um, other kind of placental mammals on the other side. So um, in terms of um, what we can kind of learn uh, or to understand the planet more generally, uh, I think we can see here that invisible lines can be incredibly powerful in determining what kinds of animals live um and you know where they where they live and Wallace is actually sometimes called the father of biogeography because of his influence on the studies of species distribution but I think the Wallace line actually also exemplifies the appeal of lines kind of as a concept to people um, one thing that I argue early on in the book is that lines are the simplest things we can draw and that innately we use them really to inna- we use them to make our complex planet that bit more understandable and tangible We can easily draw these lines to differentiate between different places and what can be found there. But because of this simplicity, um, these lines are at risk of being seized and used by people for all sorts of purposes, uh, including to justify um, the perceived existence of differences among humans, not just animals and and, uh, flora. So this has been the case of the Wallace line. It's an empirically supported ecological dividing line but it's also been um, at some points in its history commandeered by nationalist and colonial groups to justify their own territorial claims Uh, because people will say things like, you know, have said oh, we here are racially different from you there so uh, I think this is just one way in which invisible lines can be used to imagine and even enforce differences across space not just to understand the differences we see across space
0: Hmm. No, it's a a fabulous example on, as I said at the beginning, right, so many levels. Um, This is, I think, a great way of encapsulating so many of the different aspects the book brings together. Um, Moving, however, to another category, so not staying on this one too long, I did say it would be a bit of a highlights tour. Um, (laughs) You talked about one of your subsequent categories, the invisible lines that help us exert our influence on the planet as humans. Um, And you talked a little bit about that this is focusing on human-made interventions that had at least benevolent intentions, if not necessarily outcomes. Yeah. Why did you choose to focus on those kinds of human interventions for this category?
1: Yeah, a really good question. It was something that occurred to me when I was organising the chapters, trying to find some common threads between them, um, that a lot of the time, as you say, these lines have been created by humans and have had sometimes really quite serious consequences. But actually, um, the six I use in this section, um, I think, have tended to be or have all kind of been intended in quite a positive way or a way that we can understand as being quite positive, even though, um, of course, there can be a lot of contention surrounding them. So really in this section, what I wanted to do was question and rethink some of the common narrative on boundaries. Um, I would say we often think about, excuse me, dividing lines as something negative. As something that um, constrain us as manifestations of prejudice as mechanisms of exclusion, and I don't agree that lamentably that's often the case um, and certainly later in the book, uh, I highlight uh, some relevant examples of spatial intolerance and prejudice but Uh, what I wanted in this section is to show that not all boundaries are perceived or established for such insidious purposes. Um, What we see here is that invisible lines can be created by humans with quite um, positive intentions as well. Um, So one example might be uh, the establishment of an exclusion zone following something like a nuclear disaster. Um, You know, this is something which I think we can see is quite necessary. And sometimes it can be... um, some unforeseen consequences, which is a bit of a theme in some of the chapters. Um, but on the whole, this is something which I think people would say is is quite necessary. Um, a very kind of relevant one really with COVID, uh, would be the establishment of a cordon sanitaire, um, just a way of trying to protect people from, uh, disease outbreaks, try outbreaks, trying to keep people safe. Um, again, you know, these can be quite contested, but I think the overall purpose of them is something which is quite necessary. Um, so the, Six examples here all show uh, ways in which lines can be used to make the world more livable, manageable. Um, so can be about things like protected areas. Um, I've got a chapter which looks at time zones again, something which is quite necessary to living in a modern, globalised world. All of these show um, how we can draw lines to have um, to influence the planet, to exert our influence, um, and all with quite a positive intention. Um, so all six in this section are human inventions and uh, I think they all should be seen as having quite principled objectives.
0: Hmm. I'd love to ask um, about one of them that I've always been really curious about. So I was fascinated to find it in the book, The International Dateline. Um, as you said, time zones are quite important and I never, I could never quite get my head around the fact that somehow all of these countries had agreed on it. Um, That just seemed like such a, you know, no one agrees on anything, right? And something such a big deal as this and which kind of so many different politics and goals involved um, has always sort of been fascinating. So I was kind of quite pleased to find it in this book, given that if we're talking about invisible lines, this seems like quite an important one. Um, And you obviously talk in the book about kind of the history of it and why it happened, which is fascinating. And you also say that it's, quote, a dynamic and compelling representation of our relationship with the world. Um, so similarly to what we've just talked about with Indonesia, that there's this particular example, but it also is telling us something bigger. Would you mind telling us a bit about the international dateline?
1: Yeah, um, as you say, I think it's really interesting example and i think it's one which uh, a, lot, a lot of people if not everyone will be familiar with in some way um some of the examples in the book i think are a bit more obscure but it's still one which has this huge fascinating history um and one which is sometimes uh, not known all that widely so yeah um so as you say um I do see the international dateline as this kind of dynamic, compelling representation of our relationship with the world because I think it it shows um, how, in part, we take it for granted... Uh, I think a lot of the time, that we actually have different time zones. This is, of course, a human invention. Um, Time zones are not something which we've always had. And likewise, the international dateline. All of these things, I think, now seem quite natural, um, but they've only really, well, they've only existed since the last quarter of the 19th century and were intended for a deeply practical reason, just to standardise the time in an increasingly interconnected and globalised world. Um, So... I think it showed they sh- the international dateline says a lot about our relationship with the world because um it's got such a practical purpose um what was happening at the time um by sort of the 1870s was that people were just missing their trains, Uh, they were missing their train connections, because at the time, um, noon was strictly determined by the position of the sun in the sky. And that differs as you travel west or east. So as soon as you went west or east, um, you'd be at risk of just getting the time wrong, as far as the local station was concerned. Um, Now, I, I think it's a really good example of our relationship with the world as well, because it shows how malleable um boundaries uh, lines can be again um not a natural boundary something that actually can be changed and altered over time um and again this is quite true of how we engage with the world more generally um we can change our minds we can um try and draw something in a new position um but the intention is really just to make the world a bit more manageable so um there's some really, I think, interesting examples within the chapter of just how time zones in general have been redefined over time. And uh, as, again, there's quite a lot, I think, about human nature in some ways. Um because a lot of the time the reasons can be quite symbolic or they can be related to geopolitics. Um, So a recent example would be North Korea, which created its own time zone from 2015 to 2018 um, to mark the 70th anniversary of Korea's liberation from Japan. Um, So it's just this kind of symbolic statement. Um, I think it's, I always found it curious that Spain is um, part of the same time zone as Germany as well. Um, and yeah, looking into it, it's, um, although Germany is quite a bit further east, it's because the two countries wanted to feel more aligned when they were allies during World War II. And with the international dateline, likewise, we see uh, these changes over time. Samoa moved across it, literally losing a day from its history, for example, um, because it wanted to trade more easily um, with its main trading partners on the western, not the eastern side of the Pacific. Um, so what we see then is that the international dateline is this great example of how people try to take some control over the planet through drawing what at first glance appears to be a simple line running north to south, but whose specific positioning is actually proven quite contentious and has been altered and redefined over time. Uh, We draw lines like the international dateline because they make the world easier to negotiate. We can agree on when it's a new day, on what time it is. Um, As you say, this is like an internationally agreed standard. Um, But behind the scenes, there's always disagreement and geopolitics is often central. So just as we want to increase our understanding of the planet, we also want to shape it to suit our uh, our needs and I would regard the international dateline as a perfect example of that.
0: Mm, very much so. Speaking of um, people claiming things to suit their needs, obviously the next category to discuss is the one titled How Invisible Lines Allow People to Claim Territory as Their Own, um, which is certainly the closest to my research on uh, Civil War peace treaties. So I was, yeah, I was really impressed that you managed to only pick uh, six examples i was like goodness how could you possibly narrow it down um and given the kind of range of scope of, of place and time that the examples range across would you mind kind of briefly listing for us what the examples are in this category and then how in the world you managed to pick those six
1: yeah absolutely um and certainly it was very difficult to kind of narrow it down and to work out which um chapters you go into to which section? So, I'm just making sure I have the exact order up in front of me. Excuse me, one moment I have the list, but I just want to make sure I get it completely right in order. Um, so, the Cunning Territory has their own. So, um, what we have is uh, the Treaty of Tordesillas, so, you know, kind of globally relevant example, um, Beer to Will, which um, is this sort of unclaimed territory uh, on the border between Egypt and, and Sudan. We have the outback in Australia. Um, we got a chapter on landmines and the in- entity boundary line, which is in Bosnia um, and Herzegovina. And we've a chapter on football in Buenos Aires and then street gangs in Los Angeles. So these were the six I ultimately um Shows for showing how uh, people can claim territory as their own. And there were other ones that could have gone in this section, I must say. Um, I think the chapter on Eight Mile in Detroit, on the peace lines in Northern Ireland, on um, Erevim perhaps as well. Um, all of these might have fitted into this section, but ultimately I felt that they better spoke to the themes of the final two sections on dividing between us and them, and seeking to maintain a sense of cultural distinctiveness. So I place them there. Um, So how did I choose them? I really wanted to use examples that collectively show how this phenomenon of people claiming territory as their own, uh, how this phenomenon is true at all sorts of spatial scales, rather than us maybe dismissing out of hand um, this trend as something that just powerful national governments will do when they're trying to colonise other parts of the world. So Tordesillas, the Treaty of Tordesillas, illustrates that um, objective quite clearly, um, because it's about Spain and Portugal agreeing to divvy up most of the world between them in the 1490s, regardless regardless of what anyone else thought. Um, A lot of the other examples, as you might sense, are more localised. So um, the chapters on football in Buenos Aires and street gangs in Los Angeles Um, Both of these are cities where people often have a very distinct sense of belonging or not belonging to a specific neighbourhood and where people will often use various practices like writing graffiti, um, wearing particular clothes. um, These kinds of practices can be used to define insiders and outsiders and ultimately mark out who's part of the city um, this really is. Um, I also really wanted to convey in this section some of the continued legacy of colonialism, uh, again, of course, being a clear instance of people claiming territory for, themse- for themselves. So Tordesia again, very relevant to that, but also Beer to Will and the Outback are, I think, quite insightful examples of indigenous voices being marginalised or ignored by those with less historic attachment to the land in question. And then the chapter on Bosnia and Herzegovina again, a place that's seen considerable change over the past century, not only with respect to its borders, but it's also its internal boundaries. Um, What we see here is um, the use of lines to determine who um, in the electorate, for instance, has a political say where, depending on their ethnicity. Um, So, I'd say all of that was kind of how I helped choose. Oh, and I should say actually one other thing which was quite important to me, and uh, it's true of the whole book, but I certainly intended this to be particularly the case in this section, is I wanted to get as much global coverage as possible. So as you might have heard, um kind of worked out. Uh, you know, we have a chapter from Africa here, a, ca- a chapter from Australasia, a chapter from Europe, a chapter from Latin America, a chapter from a chapter from North America, and the Tordesillas chapter, which is quite global, but um, has had really big impacts on Asia um, in the main. So although I had to play around quite a lot with the combinations, um, I'm pleased with what I finally decided, because uh, I think it really shows how invisible lines, um, this, the use of invisible lines to claim territory is really an international phenomenon. Um, and it's something which is practised, as I say, not just by political leaders, but actually by individuals. And it's something which has this huge kind of enduring history.
0: Hmm. I am glad you made that point about kind of at different geographic and spatial scales and um, because that was something I was thinking about as well in terms of um which examples to ask you to talk about in a bit more detail so we've talked about Indonesian islands so that's kind of one particular kind of scale the international date line is obviously incredibly global um but this idea of these lines being incredibly powerful not just at that massive scale but also on a much smaller scale in terms of physical amount of space they're still incredibly powerful so one of those examples i'd love for you to tell us a bit about is buenos Aires. why does this city have so many football clubs and so many football clubs with such incredibly strong invisible lines and identities
1: yeah um, so in short politics um in the first instance Uh, I think the answer owes to Argentina's immigration laws around the turn of the 20th century. Um, So the country at the time was welcoming millions of Europeans, especially from Italy and Spain. Um, And by 1914, um, found a statistic that 70% of Buenos Aires' population was foreign-born. So this huge kind of outnumbering of uh, the immigrant population compared to the indigenous um, population of of Argentina. So. Um, how do you socialise and integrate all of these immigrants all coming at once into a new country? And more specifically, um, they're part of the country, down all the way to the neighbourhood scale, uh, the barrio scale. Um, What happened around this time was a huge number of civic organisations, such as football clubs, were established um, because all of these could be used to quite effectively Build up this sense of local neighbourhood identity amongst newcomers, and offer them all sorts of leisure opportunities. Um, and so, it's it's quite remarkable. You know, the history of these clubs was not just about football. Um, people would go to them to dance, to box, to swim, play basketball, tennis, um, even cook and watch films. In some cases, they really were quite all um, embracing. They're quite holistic organisations. So. Um, beginning of the 20th century, huge numbers of these clubs were being established in a short space of time to cater to this large immigrant population. And really just quite quickly, um, you see kind of these budding political candidates emerge, recognising the opportunities these clubs could offer them to reach large groups of people, and especially generally young males um, You know, these were overwhelmingly the membership of these clubs, and also um, at the time in Argentina, only men had the vote. So you could reach large numbers of generally young males, um, by far the biggest vote holding demographic in the city, um, and you could try and sway them to, you know, to vote for you um, because. These were people who'd already be quite familiar with um, democratic processes um, as they'd be off to elect their club's officials, for instance. So political candidates recognised the potential these clubs offered. And so over time, we start to see winners and losers emerge. Uh, some clubs would grow, others would disappear. And the ones that tended to succeed were those that enjoyed the support of a locally influential political figure or business person um, who could Afford to develop new amenities, field a better team, get more supporters, get more members, and for the politician, you know, get more potential voters. So, as the city, Buenos Aires, started, you know, continued to grow into the 20th century, um, this more kind of um, neighborhood sense of identity uh, continued really to be reinforced because although a lot of clubs ended up moving to new locations. Um, we see this identification a lot of people maintain with the original neighborhood. Um, And actually what's quite interesting is fans have done this in different ways. Um, So, some have opted to furnish their old barrio identity. Um, the major club, Boca Juniors, is a great example because uh, fans there still tend to present themselves as the working class Docklands team uh, from La Boca, um, whereas other teams' fans often identify themselves with new places. So their main rivals, River Plate, um, move to a kind of leaf, leafy, wealthy neighbourhood of the city and their fans actually therefore see themselves as the team of the upwardly mobile. So you see kind of class and identity becomes a really important aspect of how fans understand themselves. Um, And just kind of moving into the more, you know, the current day, even now we see that politicians are often very involved in Argentinian football. That hasn't really changed um, because nominees just know that they can readily reach voters through the clubs and, Quite, you know, controversially, um, there have been a lot of cases of politicians being known to reward fans for appearing in their political campaigns, uh, with by kind of paying their favorite club, helping them to purchase new players, and also often turning a blind eye to hooligan activity, which does remain a notorious issue in many parts of the city. So, really, to summarise, politicians can do well at the polls by involving themselves in football clubs. And this political support, as well as the sense of identity these clubs offer their football-mad local communities, allows a large number of teams to thrive. So we have a huge number of teams. They are attached to some neighbor, one neighborhood or another. And um, just the sheer number is really quite incredible, I think. When I counted, Buenos Aires province still has 24 professional football clubs, which um, is considerably more even than somewhere like London.
0: Yeah, that that's a lot. I was quite shocked um, to see those numbers. So thank you for taking us through that. Staying at the well, I suppose city level, maybe more than one city. Um, can we cross the ocean um, and tell us about another sort of entrenched division uh, again with political elements? The Northern Irish peace lines. Um, we've had the Good Friday Agreement for a while now. Obviously. I'm going to be the first to say that that doesn't mean that everything is solved. Um, Why is it difficult still to take down these not exactly invisible barriers um, that in some senses might have outlived their purpose?
1: Yeah, it's certainly a kind of really serious issue and I think shows some of the, um, you know, how these kind of uh, boundaries are often really difficult to remove and as you say you know they're not exactly invisible we can see these these barriers um but actually the meaning behind them is what's invisible um i'll, I'll come on to that more i think in a second um but yeah, as you say, these peace lines or peace walls, physical barriers that were originally constructed in response to sectarian violence in northern Irish cities, um, like Belfast, during the first few decades of the 20th century. But as your question alludes, even though the conflict officially ended with the Good Friday Agreement um, all, the way, all the way back now in 1998, these barriers haven't disappeared. In fact, um, they've grown both in number and height, since so why is it so difficult to take them down? Um, one reason is is that just because politicians can sign a peace agreement, like the Good Friday Agreement, this doesn't automatically mean that residents will feel more positively about those they have been fighting for decades. Um, what we see here is that um, people, will, you know, often live quite separate, parallel lives on either side of this physical boundary. So. Um, it's not just the boundary, but people will be in, you know, children will be in segregated schools. Um, there will be often separate workplaces for people on either side, and really, just residents have become so accustomed to the boundaries' existence and haven't had much opportunity to build any kind of real genuine relationship with people on the other side, face to face. This can just enable this division more generally to continue to to flourish, really, um, and. What we also see is that there can still be a lot of suspicion, especially considering that the conflict here um, crystallized some compelling, intersecting identity categories. So um, c- involving, for instance, um, nationality, politics, religious identity. Um, so although there are, of course, plenty of people who would like the barriers to be taken down, there's a lot of uncertainty about what would happen next. And that's proven to be really powerful justification for actually keeping them up. Um, A lot of um, kind of discourse about what if they on the other side attack us again uh, if the boundary were to be removed? What if um, the government builds a new housing development for them on the land where the peace line had once protected us? And a lot of politicians are acutely aware of these fears as well and suspect that pushing for the removal of the peace line will kind of torpedo their own electability. So they're not exactly incentivized to get rid of them. Um, I'd say another reason why it's difficult to take these down is that the peace lines have become not mere barriers, but also canvases um, for those on either side to reinforce this you know, quite deeply held sense of identity, again, around you know, nationality, around religion, around political preference. Um, the barriers are often used to convey to future generations what... Um, You know, one should know or believe about uh, one's own side and the other side. So we see the painting of murals, which is uh, something which has been done for a long time now on the peace lines, which often used to commemorate those who died for, um, you know, your side's cause. And um, we often see this sense of us versus them being, Uh, reproduced through depictions of militants and through depictions of uh, or or kind of the writing of warnings to those deemed not to belong a very kind of clear sense of us versus them so what i would argue and how these operate then invisible lines these peace lines is um well in part we see that um cities often kind of characterized by these invisible attitudes and beliefs and the peace lines are really just the, the kind of substance that make these invisible divisions more visible and tangible and what this also means is that if you were to eliminate a peace line um, this might be seen as kind of tantamount to dissolving a group's sense of identity and even to uh, imply that one must relinquish land that um, they've often kind of fought to retain or long fought to retain so Really, the peace lines continue to exist because of this catch-22, as much as people might hope to eliminate them, to mend fences, so to speak, with those on the other side. This will only happen once people on both sides feel sufficiently safe from harm, yet this very feeling of safety is um, kind of contingent on the existence of the peace lines. And um, just to explain it a bit better, I think, this is why I consider peace lines invisible boundaries. Even if they were to suddenly disappear, it seems extremely unlikely that centuries of us versus them, prejudices, grievances, anger, that all of these things will immediately disappear with them. Um, these feelings are much more um, enduring than just the physical barrier. Um, they're all these psychological barriers, and the peace lines operate as the substance that makes those psychological barriers um, kind of more yeah, tangible, mm.
0: more solid. In a similar vein, I'd love to ask you about the Ural Mountains, um, commonly seen as the boundary between Europe and Asia, and yet not actually that logical geographically as a boundary, but very much kind of embedded psychologically in a lot of people's thinking with some kind of clear consequences. So can you take us through sort of why they're considered to be a boundary when kind of maybe strict geography doesn't really back that up?
1: Yeah, as you say, uh, the Ural Mountains are really a great example of this kind of psychological boundary, which maybe isn't um, all that easy to justify as a a continental boundary. So it's certainly a common belief that the Ural Mountains are like the boundary between Europe and Asia. But it's also quite a, a, a... recent belief. um, Throughout most of the history of of geography, um, there have been other places which and and other dividing lines which have been kind of mooted as the Europe-Asia boundary. And uh, in fact, an argument that I do make in the chapter is that um, it's quite debatable, um, really, that Europe and Asia are actually distinct continents in any case. Um, For one thing, they share the same tectonic plate, you know, kind of the, the the majority of the land masses, um, and they're not separated by a major body of water kind of things that are usually used to uh, distinguish con- uh, continental boundaries or to distinguish one continent from another. Um, but what we see here is that the continental boundary, or perceived or real, um, between Europe and Asia has this quite incredible staying power. Um, it's certainly not new for um, people to say that Europe and Asia are different places. Um, this originated this idea um, somewhat implicitly in the maps of many ancient Greek scholars, uh, Anaximander, Hecateus of uh, Miletus, Herodotus, they all sort of labelled Europe and Asia quite differently. And for a long time afterwards, scholars would locate the continental boundary actually further southwest, often in the Caucasus, mount, Caucasus Mountains so around to the modern day Republic of Georgia, for instance. And then later along what's now called the Don River, um, from there running sort of southwest through water bodies like the Black Sea and the Bosphorus, um, it's kind of how we see somewhere like Istanbul, also often described as a sort of transcontinental city being on the boundary between west and east, Europe and Asia. But in terms of the Urals, it was actually only in the 1730s uh, that this mountain range was um, described as a boundary between Europe and Asia. And this is thanks to the work of a Swedish um, army officer and geographer um, who was an expert on Russia, uh, but I say he was actually from Sweden. Uh, his name was Philip Johann von Stralenberg. And he essentially claimed that the Don River, the traditional divide, is just too small and too far south to be considered a continental divide. So he did some exploring. He did a lot of in-depth research with a Russian colleague. And uh, he eventually decided that the Ural Mountains were a more effective and justifiable boundary. his main reason though was actually not about sort of natural differences in terms of the geology, for instance, he did mention these, but they they tend to be quite minor. His justification, interestingly, this is where we see politics play a role, um, was that um, to the West, essentially of the Ural mountains, one would describe Russia as being this grand modern imperial nation. Um, He wanted essentially to, um, highlight this kind of burgeoning new modern nation to the west of the Urals and uh, to celebrate it. And to help do that, um, he argued that to the east of the Urals was the sort of ungovernable wild territory, um, which we would call Siberia. So there's this kind of quite clear difference in his ideology between this kind of Europeanized Russia, um, one that Uh, he thought should be embraced by other European nations as a partner. So this um, effort to draw the boundary along the Urals to say this part of Russia should be part of Europe. Um, It has lots in common with Europe and should be um, a valuable nation for other countries to trade with and to to ally with. But to the East is this kind of unknown and unknowable Siberia with what he would just call kind of Asian inhabitants who uh, according to the worldview of Europeans, were also naturally inferior. So, this is quite insidious, purpose of dividing between Europe and Asia at this point. Um, and really, just this idea of Russia being two Russias, Russia versus Siberia, kind of took root from this point and has continued to be perpetuated over time. Um, and it's kind of quite interesting. I got to look at um, a lot of original source material by people like Adolf Hitler who um, you know he actually at the start of Operation Barbarossa would again speak of this boundary along the Urals. Um, Hitler claimed or he pledged to control all the land west of the Ural Mountains as far as he was concerned that would be the boundary that meant he would control Europe Um, and then he realized that the Ural Mountains are actually quite a modest range they're long but they're not very high and he became concerned about that and um, just said well These don't form an effective physical boundary against a competent army. And then later on, Charles de Gaulle um, also popularized the boundary, the Ural boundary concept and angered Khrushchev at the time because Khrushchev didn't like the implied existence of a dividing line within his country, uh, kind of stimulating a minor diplomatic crisis. So... um, Overall, really, it's, it's hard to see the U.S. as much of a continental boundary. Really, the reasoning is much more um, due to socio-politics as opposed to Uh, physical geography, there isn't a significant water body here, there isn't a tectonic plate boundary here, either which would provide greater justification for the Urals being a continental boundary. And it's not even a very effective cultural boundary, in in honesty. Um, There's certainly a lot of commonalities within Russia on either side of it. But instead, we see the power of ideology of the drawing of invisible lines to try and um, distinguish between us and them, Europeans and Asians, um, even if this can actually be quite spurious
0: thank you for taking us through that one i think there's some obvious links to um current events in that area um and it's helpful to understand kind of hang on a second this idea that's thrown around sometimes without a lot of investigation deserves some poking at so thank you for taking us through that
1: yeah if i may there's um mm-hmm. there's a quote that I include as well by Dostoevsky which I think is also just really interesting because Dostoevsky was very much someone who championed the idea of Russia should look towards Asia not Europe and um, you know again he was a really good example amongst many other writers Russian writers at the time in distinguishing between Europeans and Asians it's just he actually preferred the Asian side to the European side um, but the quote he provides is really quite startling I think. He quoted a few things but one of them was that Russia's hopes and he said, lie perhaps more in Asia than in Europe. In our future, Asia will be our salvation. And he wrote in a, a letter to um, the Russian poet Apollon that about his experience in Europe. This is, these are his words. If you only knew what a stupid, dull, insignificant, savage people it is, there are parties and continuous squabbles, pauperism, terrible mediocrity and everything. A workman here is not worth a little finger of a workman of ours. The customs are savage. Their inferiority of development, the drunkenness, the thieving, the paltry swindling that have become the rule in their commerce. This is how he describes uh, his experiences in Europe. So um, quite an interesting, quite an interesting, quite powerful quote, I think.
0: Yeah, no, very much so. Thank you for adding that in. I'd love to, as we come towards the end of this, um, something you said in the book, I found really fascinating because of course the idea of belts and boundaries seem very finite in a lot of ways, kind of you literally draw a line on a page and then it's there, right? A belt is about making something not move. but as you've discussed through these examples, um, pretty much all of the ones that you talk about in the book, they're they're not inevitable. <laughs> they were created in various ways, especially in terms of how people think about them. So in what ways should we maybe be thinking about boundaries as processes rather than sort of a fixed line that is always there?
1: Yeah, it was something I was thinking a lot about, especially just seeing how malleable many of these boundaries are. And um, I recall writing about this idea of a boundary being a process uh, rather than being something fixed in relation to my chapter on Aceh in Indonesia, but it is a point that applies to various of the examples I use. Um, so I argue that a boundary can be understood as a process because, first of all, it can be far more subjective than an official dividing line like a border, and this was something that was, helped drive me with writing the book. Um, I think, you know, rightly we have a lot. Of, we pay a lot of attention to questions of borders, but actually there are so many of these uh, kind of unofficial dividing lines which affect really many, maybe most of us. Um, more regularly certainly on a daily basis and actually have a greater impact on our lives so um, what we see then with any kind of unofficial boundary uh, dividing line is that its its location can be very subjective people can imagine it in all sorts of locations depending on their knowledge or perceptions of different places which can of course also change over time so uh i think of something like the north south divide which you know people will often refer to in in england Um, it's a concept though that exists in numerous other countries or has variations like west east divides all of these kinds of dividing lines are necessarily changeable rather than static depending on the context um i think maybe just imagine uh, a government official who is trying to justify a cut in public funding for public transport on the other side of the line um what we see is they might kind of place the line quite strategically, uh, and that might differ from how someone else where someone else would place it. Um, So what we have to consider here is who is speaking and for what purpose. Um, And so as a result of these differences where the line is actually said to be changes because it was never really fixed to begin with. Um, but with regard to Aceh specifically, I argue that a boundary re- represents a dynamic process because in this case, it marks out two completely different legal and political systems within Indonesia between uh, Aceh, which um, uses Sharia law, um, and its neighboring Indonesian province, province, which is north of Sumatra, where the law is national secular law. And pra- the practice of and adherence to both types of law um, are necessarily dynamic. Um, so one example I use in the chapter is of girls wearing an Islamic headscarf. Um, since there's been a lot of change over time in, um, in Indonesian law regarding this and also in Archinese Sharia law. Um, basically, since February 2021, public schools in most of Indonesia are by law prohibited from compelling girls to wear a headscarf. But in Aceh, which is one of its provinces, albeit one with a high level of autonomy, this law doesn't apply. And here, not only are schoolgirls required to wear a headscarf, but headscarf-wearing police women are tasked with forcing other women to wear one in public as well. So this huge discrepancy, and one that hasn't always existed. In fact, it's quite new. To so say kind of um in its modern iteration, just dates back to February twenty twenty one, and if you were to imagine a female Muslim visitor crossing from North Sumatra into Aceh, they would be confronted with a far more acute boundary today than in the past. Um, And there are all sorts of other legal prohibitions in Aceh which don't apply in all or most of the rest of Indonesia. So um, it can range from things like drinking alcohol to holding hands in public. And the punishments can be really quite severe. So because Aceh only gained this special autonomy um, this millennium, um, within the last 20 years, this legal political boundary is actually still very new. And it represents a process because laws and policies on either side change. If they were the same on both sides, the boundary I'm referring to just wouldn't exist in any meaningful way. And I think um, several other examples in the book actually speak to this idea of a boundary being a process as well. Um, In this final section, um, I have a couple of chapters on linguistic lines um, because what we see here is that distinct languages and dialects are always evolving. So again, um, the boundaries between languages uh, languages and dialects are also changing. Um, I mentioned briefly the Bible Belt earlier. I think that's another one where we can see the boundary is a process. Um, Religious identification is fluid. People might move over time. Um, The strictness within with which people adhere to religion can also change over over time or how it's related to politics can change over time. So all of these things are quite fluid. And this is why um, boundaries aren't just something which kind of can stay in one place um they are entities or psychological in many ways entities which actually do depend on changing circumstances
0: absolutely fascinating um both the example and the concept so thank you for taking us through that i think we've done a decent job of kind of going from the big picture of the book into some detail and now back out to the big picture Um, Obviously, there's so many more things I could ask you about, but I think we'll probably finish off here with the final question. Um, the book is available for people to go read. That means it's off your plate. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to share with us?
1: Yeah, um, very excited now that the book is uh, available and uh hopefully people will enjoy it and maybe even share uh some of their own examples which is actually something not me working on but i'd love to hear if um people say oh you know why did he not cover this boundary? It has such a big impact kind of thing. I'd actually just love to hear what other people have to say in terms of the invisible boundaries they encounter or are aware of. In terms of what I'm working on now, um, well, I'm starting a new quarter at DePaul this week, so that's one thing. But in terms of uh, research, two things. um, I'm starting a research product, uh, an academic one, with some colleagues across the US on sacred space. Um, So that's one thing I'm doing. But in terms of work more related to invisible lines, uh, I will soon beginning writing my second book. Um, I confess I'm yet to decide on a title, but I'm tentatively calling it connecting the dots. Um, And What I want to do in this book is provide a kind of appropriate follow up to Invisible Lines, because it's going to adopt the same line theme, but flip it around. Um, So what I mean by that is, um, whereas Invisible Lines focuses on how we divide between places using boundaries, uh, what I'm going to call connecting the dots will focus on how lines can actually be used to connect places as well um, so division versus connection um, and I've been collecting a lot of ideas for new case studies over the summer over the past few month, months and I think I've nearly finalized my list uh, I'm going to get some feedback uh, before I start it though on invisible lines and on the choice of chapters and um, I hope to use a similar structure, um, categorising the case studies in, into different ways in which we use connecting lines to engage with the planet. And I'm very conscious of trying to cover parts of the world that I didn't have the opportunity to dis- to discuss in as much depth in invisible lines as well. So um, there should be, I think, some new insights into places which, um, you know, maybe I didn't have as much opportunity to talk about Invisible Lines. I want to try and cover as much of the world as possible across the two books. So please keep an eye out for it once it's ready. Um, But it will still be a bit of time yet.
0: No, of course, but that sounds very exciting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And while you're working on it, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, Invisible Lines, Boundaries and Belts that Define the World from Profile, published this year in 2023. Maxim, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I loved your questions and it's been great having the chance to talk to you about, um, about the book.